What a great hymn. I think we're going to have them back, aren't we, Steve? Are we going to have the Gettys back, like in September or something? I'm looking forward to that. Well, today we continue our series in the Old Testament. We've come to the book of Isaiah. The name Isaiah means salvation is of the Lord, or the Lord is salvation. It is believed by some that Isaiah was a member of the royal family of Judah. It is also believed that he was from the tribe of Levi. And the reason there are those who believe that was because of his description of the temple in chapter number 6. In chapter number 8 of Isaiah, it tells us that he was married to a prophetess, and they had two sons. Now, as we get to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah lived around 700 years before the birth of Christ. So I want you to keep that in mind as you consider the prophecies that he gave. He lived about 700 years before Jesus. During the time of his life, there were five Judean kingdoms. The first king was Uzziah, who reigned from about, or lived from about 790 to 739 B.C. He was followed by King Jotham. He was followed by King Ahaz. He was followed by King Hezekiah. And he was followed by King Manasseh. There was one commentator who wrote, The Jews say he was at last put to death by Manasseh to a cruel death being sawn asunder. So that is the prophet of which we speak, the one that bears the name of Isaiah. He died in the time of Manasseh. It is interesting to me that almost all of his prophecy, almost all of the book of Isaiah, is recorded in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so it is almost totally contained in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Much of his writing was a prophecy concerning the promised Messiah. For instance, he prophesied about the birth of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 7. There he said, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, he wrote that some 700 years before Jesus was born. He also prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53 about the suffering and the subsequent death of the Messiah. So let me encourage you that you go through this book and you look at his prophecies, especially concerning his prophecies of the Messiah. Prophesied his birth in chapter 7, prophesied his death in chapter 53. All right, we'll begin now, and I want you to take your Bibles and look with me. Beginning in Isaiah chapter 1 at verse number 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, 
You will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In chapter number one of this prophet's book, he begins by speaking about the sinfulness of Judah. That's what he says in verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Now, as we look in the earlier verses of this chapter, he begins to enumerate the sins of Judah. He is listing the sins of this people. Now, this is not one of those feel-good sermons that seems to be so popular in many churches today. It's not something good is going to happen to you. When he addresses Judah, he is listing their sin. And so he says, first of all, that they were debased. That means that they were less than what God intended them to be. And their debasement came because of their ingratitude. They simply were not grateful. They were not grateful for the Lord's blessings. They were not grateful for God's provision. They were not grateful for God's protection. They simply were not grateful. And as a result of that, the Bible says that they were debased. Not only were they debased because of their ingratitude, but also because they were irreverent. Look at verse number 2. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know my people, do not understand. Strong says that word revolt means to break away from just authority. You see, they knew what God's will was. They knew what their call was. They knew that. But they revolted against it. It is not a lack of knowledge on their part. It is not like they did not know what God had said. They knew and they revolted from it. Matthew Henry wrote, Sooner will the inanimate creatures hear who observe the law and answer the end of their creation than this stupid, senseless people. It's interesting as I look at that. He says the ox is willing to submit himself to the yoke of the master. He said the donkey knows where he is fed. But in comparison to these people, the ox and the donkey have more spiritual sense than they do. That's what he is saying. They know who is their master. They know who provides for them, and yet the Bible says they revolt against it. They are debased. They are defiled. Verse number 4. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. He uses several words there to describe these people. He says, first of all, that they are sinful. That word basically means to miss the mark. That they simply had not measured up to God's expectation that they had missed the mark. Sinful. He says, iniquity. That means a perversion or twisting aside. Do you know what they perverted? Do you know how they perverted? They shifted the attention that belonged to God to themselves. And their focus was on themselves rather than on God. He says that they were evildoers 
Charles Pfeiffer says it means those who commit harmful, injurious sins. That's almost like an oxymoron to me. Here, these are the called of God. These are the people of God. And yet the Bible says they are evildoers. Folks, the people of God are not to be evildoers. And yet that's what Isaiah said of these. He says they have acted corruptly. And that means that they had defiled that that was wholesome. Defile that that was wholesome. Matthew Henry wrote, They were not only corrupt children, born tainted, but children that were corruptors that propagated vice and infected others with it, not only sinners, but tempters. Not only were these people corrupt, but they encouraged others in corruption. I don't know how it affects you, but as I read this passage of Scripture, it almost seemed to me as if it were a message written to us today, written to the church today, written to the people of America today. As he said, not only are these people corrupt, but they encourage others to be corrupt which is what we see today. They were defiant. In verse number 4b, he continues, They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. They were defiant in their defiled position. It says that they have abandoned the Lord. That literally means gone away backward. When they were urged forward, they ran backwards. It's like a rebellious child whenever the parent says, come here, and the child takes off in the other direction. That's what they had done. He says that they, they, have, uh, they have gone backwards when urged forward. He says they have continued in rebellion. In verse number 5, where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? You see... They were committed to rebelling against God. They knew what God had said, but they continued in their rebellion. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we need to understand that there's a consequence to that. Yes, you can rebel against God, but you must understand there is a consequence. In fact, the Scripture says in Proverbs 29.1, A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. Again, as I look at this passage of Scripture and then I apply it to our own day, it seems to me like it is where we are as a nation today in rebellion against God. Donald Trump, not a theologian, but he wrote The America We Deserve. He records the biggest threat to our security is ourselves because we become arrogant, dangerously arrogant. Do we truly understand the threats we face? It seems to me that we do not understand as a nation, as a people, that if we continue in rebellion against God, that we are going to face God's judgment. It is as if we think we can do whatever we wish to do, that we can ignore the Word of God, that we can ignore the cause of God, that we can continue in our corruption, and there is no consequence. Folks, that is not scriptural, nor is it historic. There is always a consequence for sin, and we don't seem to understand. He goes on to say that they are diseased in verse number 5b. 
The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. We have to understand that sin totally permeates and is progressive. He says that their sin had gone from the sole of their feet to their heads. It had totally permeated their lives. Now, let me give you an example of this because I think, that it's, I think it really is important for us to understand how sin works. It is pervasive. Now, you might think that the sin in which I am engaged is not that significant, but you must understand that as sin goes on, it will totally encompass your life, and it is also progressive. Let me give you two examples. First of all is sexual sin, which is so prevalent in our society today. Let me show you how it works. In Romans chapter 1, and you can read that when you go home, but in Romans chapter 1, it says it begins in verse number 26 with degrading passions. You see, that's appealed to all the time in our society, degrading passions. In the next verse, it says that which leads to homosexuality. And in the next verse, it says, and it leaves them with a depraved mind. In other words, as we give ourselves to sin, it begins with a degrading passion, but then it begins to grow from that point until it goes from the sole of our feet to our head. It encompasses us. And then we don't even know what is right what is wrong. A depraved mind. We don't even understand today what is right and wrong. We can't make a distinction between them. And that's what the Bible says. As sin encompasses our life, we end up with a depraved mind, not knowing what is right, not knowing what is wrong. Let me give you another example, which is a, probably a little more common to us, and that is the sin of anger, which is also progressive. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 31, it shows to us the progression of anger. And I want, you to, I want you to note this because it grows when you become angry. It says, first of all, bitterness. Now, bitterness is the starting point of anger. That is the root of it. Bitterness means that I feel someone has offended me, someone has done me wrong. I am offended by what has happened to me, and that is the starting point. That is the root of it, bitterness. But then he says that it grows from bitterness to wrath. Wrath is what goes on on the inside. That burning, that boiling inside us. There's a fire going on inside. I have been wrong. I've been offended. And therefore, there's the root of bitterness that I allow. The end result of that is now then there's wrath, what is going on on the inside. And then he says anger. Anger is what happens on the outside. All right, so I have this burning on the inside. And now then it is expressed on the outside in my anger. Now then my facial muscles begin to tighten up. My face turns red. My eyes begin to glare. That is anger. That is what happens on the outside as it is permeating us from our feet to our head. So he says it begins with bitterness. It goes to wrath on the inside, anger on the outside, clamor. That that's, means we begin to shout. Now then we begin to shout at first. We, we are, we're aggravated. We're mad now. And so we begin to speak loudly. And then slander. I begin to say things about this person with whom I am angry. And then he says, malice, now I want to hurt them. 
But the, the reason I give you that is simply an example. It's in Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 31. You can look at that. But I just want you to understand how sin is pervasive. How sin begins and it starts, he says, from the sole of their feet to the top of their head. It totally encompasses us. He said they're diseased with sin. And then desolate in verse number 7. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. Matthew Henry wrote, So miserable were they that both their towns and their lands were wasted. Now listen to this. And yet so stupid that they needed to be told this and to have it shown to them. They were losing everything and didn't even know it. It had to be pointed out. They were so far away from God. They were so far away from righteousness that this was happening to them and they didn't even know it. Their land was occupied in verse number 8. And the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. So their land had been occupied by enemies now. Again, the, uh, the word shelter and hut, Pfeiffer says, means temporary lean-tos or shanties built for the quartering of guards to protect the ripening crops against poachers. You see what happened to them? Because of their sin, do you see? The Bible says that they were living in shanties. That their land had become desolate. That the enemy had taken over, had consumed. And now then here they're living like paupers in the land that God had given to them. That's what Isaiah is saying. They were decimated in verse number 9. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. They were decimated and yet they still would not repent. So Isaiah begins his book by pointing out the sinfulness of, of Judah. It was not a positive message. He points out their sin. And then he moves from there to the hypocrisy of their religion. He said that their, religious, their religion was pretentious because it was hypocritical. Look at verse number 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The point that he is making is if God judged these cities, will he not judge you? That's what he wants them to understand. If God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, will he not then judge you? He rejected their sacrifices. Verse 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. You know why God rejected their offerings, their sacrifices? It's because their sacrifices had become a substitute for righteousness. Ladies and gentlemen in the church today, we have allowed our traditions, we have allowed our order of service, we have allowed our programs, we have allowed all of these things to become a substitute for righteousness when God has called us to a life of righteousness. He said, you're trampling my courts in verse number 12. When you come to appear before me who requires of you this, trampling of my courts, Pfeiffer said this refers to the violent intrusion of foreign invaders. So like foreign invaders, the people of God were trampling underfoot that that was holy to God. Now they were using the language of heaven and living the life of hell. 
We have to be careful about these things, that we become so comfortable with the language that we live a life of unrighteousness and feel that it is accepted because it is religious. He said that their religion was hypocritical and unacceptable. Verse number 13, bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. So what does God say about their worship? He says, well, first of all, your offerings are worthless. I, I read that and I think, God, is my worship acceptable to you? And I pray that it is. But he says, your offerings are worthless. They are an abomination and I cannot endure them. In other words, God is saying, you are bringing your offerings to me and they are a stench to my nostrils. I pray that whenever we worship that our hearts are right with God. That it is a sweet incense to God. A a sweet savor to God. Because the Lord said to his people here, your offerings are unacceptable. And they are a stench in my nostril. He said, your prayers are worthless. Verse number 15. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Matthew Henry wrote, they prayed, prayed often, made many prayers, thinking they should be heard for their much speaking. They were fervent in their prayer. They spread forth their hands as men in earnest, but their prayers were unacceptable because they were more concerned about their posture than they were their hearts. You see, when the Hebrew prayed, he prayed standing upright with his hands, uh, his arms lifted, his hands stretched towards heaven to say to the Lord, you see, my hands are clean. So they were very concerned about their form of godliness, but their hearts were not right. And the Bible says in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Folks, our prayers are to be pure. They are to be perpetual, always praying. They are precious then to God, and they are powerful with God. So as I look at this passage of Scripture in Isaiah the prophet, great prophet, he begins by pointing out their sin, and then he condemns their religion. And then, lo and behold, he extends a gracious invitation to these sinful people. He called them to reason at an unreasonable time. Look at verse 18. Come now. After having said all of that, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Folks, it is unreasonable to rebel against God. It is unreasonable to rebel against a loving, holy, all-powerful God. And some of you have been blessed of God, and yet you're in rebellion against God. Some of you were brought up in a godly home. You had a godly mom, a godly dad, a godly family. They took you to church. They did those things. And yet you are in rebellion against God. That's unreasonable. Absolutely makes no sense. It is unreasonable. It is reasonable to be obedient to God. One commentator said, There is all the reason in the world why we should do as God would have us to do, because it is obedience to God that brings the favor of God to our lives. Disobedience brings judgment. Obedience brings His favor. 
It was an invitation extended at an ungodly time because they had rejected the Word of God and they had grieved the Holy Spirit. And yet there is a promise of cleansing for the sinful people. Come now, let us reason together as he extends the invitation. Reminds me of David. David's sin, committed adultery, all those things, you know the litany. But boy, whenever he went to the Lord in Psalm chapter 51 and he begins to pray and he said, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. What good news. David understood that he had failed the Lord, that he had sinned against God. But he goes to the Lord confessing his sin and says, I know that God will forgive me. That's exactly what Isaiah is saying here. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That's the invitation of God. I mean, after he points out all of their sin and he tells them that their religion is unacceptable, then he says to them, but if you come to me, if you come to me, you will be forgiven. Let me conclude. The invitation was extended to Judah. How did they respond? Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. How did they respond? God's gracious invitation. How did they respond? They rejected it. They rejected God's invitation. And they suffered God's judgment. It was in 701 B.C. that they were invaded by the Assyrians. And it was in 588 B.C. that they were invaded again by the Chaldeans. They rejected God's gracious invitation. And they suffered God's judgment. But my question today concerns your response to God's invitation. How do you respond? You see, God knows our sin. God knows if our religion is acceptable or not. He knows that if we are going through the forms of religion without the right heart. He knows that. And yet He offers an invitation to us. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That's the invitation. How do you respond? How do you respond to God's invitation of forgiveness? Our gracious Father in God, as you search our hearts today, help us to understand the seriousness of sin and how it affects us from the sole of our feet to the crown of our head. Lord, that if we continue in rebellion against you, that there is judgment because we will face you. But Lord, may we see your grace and your mercy and your invitation extended. Though our sins are scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Father, I pray today, Lord Jesus, I pray today, For that person, that man, that woman, that young person, boy, girl. Father, that today they might receive your forgiveness. I pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, in just a moment, we are going to stand. The choir is going to sing a hymn of invitation, an opportunity for you. Because the invitation is extended to you, the invitation that Isaiah gave so many years ago. What will you do? Will you respond, receiving his forgiveness? Stand with me, please. As we stand together, the choir sings. As they sing, you come, I'll greet you as you do.